This week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get to share my interview with Georgina Terry in Rochester, New York. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I have a phone interview with somebody in the bike world and this is great for me, but I get to share that with everybody else too. Uh, I've been doing this for about a year now, most weeks, and I just feel like I get a lot out of these conversations. And um, I'm really excited when I have one, especially one as good as this week's, that I can share with everybody else. Um, and yeah, it's it's great. G- Georgina Terry was a mechanical engineer at Xerox and left that stable uh probably a great paying job because what she found in custom bike frame building was like cooler and more fun. And uh, I think a lot of our listeners can probably relate to that. Um, I, I relate to a lot of the things she said about her personality and, and the way that she feels independent. And so uh, she left it and she started, you know, building bikes herself. Now as a shorter rider, she's trying to solve issues with fit and, and, you know, really stumbles upon some great ideas and starts implementing them and ends up building Terry Precision uh, Bicycles, which is this huge company with a huge legacy, making, uh, of course, lots of bicycles marketed towards women uh, that fit, you know, shorter riders and women specifically better. We talk some about the history of the phrase women-specific design. Uh, you know, Terry uh, ended up making a lot of cycling wear also, you know, like cycling clothes and, and things. And um, so we talk about the history of that. And, and then there was a buyout process where uh, she sold the company and was working with them for a while. And then more recently now, uh, Georgina works more as a bike designer where she works with bike fitters and with the customers and with her like, you know, amazing uh, understanding of the bicycle and the human body uh, tailors these great custom bicycles. Uh, that then get made by uh, Richard Schwinn and the folks at Waterford Precision Cycles in uh, in Waterford, Wisconsin. And so um, really, really super cool story, really cool person. I, I can't say enough good things about this interview that I'm stoked to share with you all. And of course, like usual, uh, at the beginning of the recording here, when I, um, you know, where the recording cuts in, I had asked her, uh, what it was like, you know, when she took those first steps, first finding out about frame building and and wanting to dive into that world. I I think uh, when it really became more serious was probably at the end of my second year working for Xerox, which would have been in 1982. And I'd kind of been fiddling around in my basement just doing stuff for myself and friends. And, and it didn't take a lot to convince me to leave Xerox and just give this a try. I wasn't totally convinced that it was going to work as a long-term career by any means, but I thought, wow, you know, given the age I am and the background I have, really, what do I have to lose? You know, if I get into it for two or three years, it doesn't work out, then I just go back to being an engineer for somebody, probably not Xerox after that, but, you know, someone else. And I I had often harbored thoughts of moving back to Pittsburgh, which is where I really got serious about bicycling and kind of, I think, enamored of steel because it's really hard to live in Pittsburgh and not relate to steel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I never did move back to Pittsburgh, but that was in the back of my mind as well. Yeah. So you were into cycling and had a deep love of riding and you're, you know, as a 
someone who was a mechanical engineer, I imagine your whole life you were just interested in the way things go together and come apart and, and all of those sorts of things. And so when you saw that there were actually people who built bikes from nothing, that spoke to you? Yeah, it did. And, and I think, you know, just as much as anything, just the idea of being able to do something on my own and say, I can claim this is something I did and I thought about that. I thought about as opposed to working for a large company where you're on a team. And I've learned, I think, very early on in life, I'm not really a team player. I, I just like going off on my own and doing stuff and would like people to kind of stay out of my way and just let me <laughs> do what I want to do. And, and frame building lent itself really nicely to that. You know, I could just hold myself up in my basement and do stuff and not worry about reporting to anyone or having to get dressed up or any of that stuff. So. Yeah, it was like, wow, this is the way to go for sure. Yeah, and so um, you, I think, we'll talk some about your sort of legacy in the industry, which is huge. Um, when I first, you know, heard about your work and the companies you've had your hands on and stuff, uh, I get the sense that a lot of it has to do with you know sort of proportional sizing of bicycles and you know like women specific saddles and and you know trying to make bikes that fit riders other than you know average and tall height men. Uh, in the very beginning for you, was that something that was on your radar or did that come organically because of, you know, you being a shorter rider? Uh, like what was that time? Like what did that trajectory look like as you found your place in the industry as someone who served that underserved demographic? Yeah, well, at first, you know, all I really wanted to do was just to figure out how to build a frame that would not fall apart underneath me when I was riding it. Because I, I was coming up the steam on so many different things. I mean, uh, from learning how to braze to mitering tubes to keeping things in alignment, all of that. So I was really focused on that. And and actually, the very first bike that I built was a knockoff of a Schwinn Super Latour 12.2, a 19-inch seat tube center-to-center bike that I had been riding and was madly in love with because it was the smallest bike that Schwinn made and it took him a while to get there. And I was just able to straddle the top two, but that was like nirvana <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so I started off just kind of copying that bike and learning a lot about geometry from looking at what Schwinn had done on that bike and some of the compromises that they had made just in the name of, of what was considered to be good aesthetics and good design at the time, uh, which really changed a lot in future. And I was influenced uh, going to bike shows. They weren't really bike shows. I guess I call them rallies, like the LAW National Rally and a big event called Gear, the Great Eastern Rally. These were held every year. And gosh, they would get a couple of thousand cyclists at these events. And you could go and set up and show your wares and let people see stuff. And uh, I was I was uh, not exhibiting at one of these, but I had just started in the frame building, and I came across Bill Boston, who at the time was a well-known builder, I believe, out of uh, Connecticut. And gosh, he just built the most incredible bikes. I mean, they were so clean, just just totally, totally clean. I'd never even mm -hmm. seen anything quite like that. But one of the cool things he was doing was he was catering to shorter riders, men or women. He didn't distinguish by using a small front wheel. And at the time, that was a 24-inch, uh, would have been an ISO 541 
uh, which gradually left left us and was replaced by the 520. He was using 700C on the rear. And when I saw how he could build a small bike without making any compromises at all in the handling of the bike or the fit of the bike because of that small front wheel, I thought, wow, you know, if I really want to have a complete line of bikes, I need to add this. So I spoke to him and said, would you mind if I started building some bikes with this configuration? I mean, I said, I feel like it's your design. The design actually has been around since the, the late 1890s. And he said, heck no, build it. Because if people don't start building it and using it, it's never going to catch on. So mm-hmm. the more of them we get out there, the better it is. And at about that time, as I started building more and more bikes in my basement and showing up on them on club rides here in Rochester, people in the bike club said, hey, that's pretty cool. Can you make me one too? (laughs) As I started doing that, I realized that more and more people were coming to me who were women who were saying, I just need a bike that fits. And, you know, a lot of cases, it wasn't only shorter women. I mean, shorter women certainly have the problem straddling the bike, at least back then they did, and reach to the handlebars. But even taller women were saying, you know, I get a bike to fit my legs and it feels like it's just really too long for my upper body. Mm-hmm. So can you help me out with that? And that made me start thinking, wow, if all these women are having this problem, it seems to me that the industry is missing a market somehow. So uh-huh. maybe I can get that market. <laughs> so at that point, I just kind of shifted my whole focus to bicycles for women and promoted myself as someone who was following that path. Because, I mean, there's so many, even back then, so many wonderful custom builders. Men had a lot of choice. So I, you know, I thought, why should I try to make men's bikes? I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. you can go anywhere for that. (laughs) I heard you say in this other podcast I was listening to, to get ready for this, that, uh, you know, you looked around at the industry and you felt like, how could all these big companies be missing out on such a massive, massive demographic, which is, you know, women riders that were just so under supported. And it's funny to think of it like that. You know, you said you have an MBA in that. And um, it's just like such an obvious business equation. Like, you know, how do we get more customers? How do we get more people? And you look now, and the bike industry does have a lot of things that are marketed in that direction. But, uh, yeah, I guess at that time, there was just a huge opportunity there. I mean, apart from how you feel about trying to champion bicycles as, like, you know, something you just believe in, that you just like, that you want there to be good options. It's also just as a huge uh, demographic of customers. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, going to these rallies, I saw how many women were there. It wasn't like these rallies were dominated by men. They weren't. I would say they were close to 50-50. You would always see tons of women there. And, you know, they'd be on bikes that didn't fit or they'd be wearing clothes that were unisex or size for men or whatever, you know. <laughs> I can look at some of the stuff I wore and went, wow, how did I wear that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I put some of it on now and go, I must have looked really funny wearing this back then. But that's all there, that was available. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was definitely an eye-opener. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, I think some of that was just so ingrained in the industry. I may have mentioned this in the other podcast, but when I first came out with one of these women's bikes that was fully, what, Shimano 600EX at the time, I think, and I was selling a complete custom bike with all that Shimano on it for $750 (laughs) and still making a profit back then on that bike. Mm -hmm. And I I showed it to a local bike dealer, and he 
was adamant that, that women weren't going to spend that much money for a bicycle. <laughs> you know? and, and I think he reflected uh, the way the industry felt. Yeah. Well, if we do make bikes for women, you know, there'll be true women's bikes and they'll weigh 50 gazillion tons and they'll cost $30. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really insulting sort of um, assumption, you know, that, that women don't take it seriously enough that they would, you know, value their own experience enough to buy a proper bicycle. Yeah, it is. And I think even today you see a lot of that. I mean, why is it that it seems like all hybrid bikes, to the extent that hybrids are still even the marketing segment, why are they always so clunky and inexpensive and and filled with not great components? I mean, does anyone ever think that maybe the woman who wants to ride that style bike would drop two or $3,000 on a bike <laughs> to get one that's lightweight and fun and lively and exciting? It just, it, I just, I don't get that. I don't yeah. get that at all. Um, you mentioned the the proportional front wheel sizing. And so uh, for me, you know, as a young person getting into bike design and frame building, back in around 2010 or 11, I found a couple of YouTube videos that you had uh, explaining proportional wheel sizing. And you have a sketch pad and a magic marker. And yeah. you're, you're explaining these ideas. And those that really burned into my mind. I thought about that a lot through the years, even as I designed bicycles, mainly for people who are, you know, average or, or, um, you know, tall people even, but just thinking about toe overlap, especially when you have larger volume tires and fenders, those ideas apply everywhere, but especially to shorter riders. Um, and then the reason you really did a good job of explaining why the rear wheel doesn't necessarily need to be the same diameter as the front wheel. I'd love to have you explain, uh, that if you would, for our guests, you know, the basic ideas there. Of the, of the front and the rear wheel, or just the rear wheel? Well, yeah, either. You know, like why you would size oh. one down and that why they both don't need to be. Yeah, yeah. The concept behind that, I mean, that was the Bill Boston concept right there. And the idea behind it was if everything that's going on from, say, the bottom bracket forward, really the size of the front wheel affects that. I mean, one dimension is the front center dimension, which is the center of the bottom bracket to the axle of the front wheel. And if that's too short, that's where you start to get toe clip overlap or toe overlap, whatever you want to call it, on sharp turns. And so one advantage of a smaller front wheel is, boy, you can really shorten up the front center distance without running into that. And when you're shortening up the front center distance, you're also effectively shortening the distance from the saddle to the handlebars. So it's obvious that for a smaller rider, upper body's probably smaller too, you know, they want to reach out as far. So it's not like you're taking a small wheel and putting it on a bike that was designed for 700C in terms of the rider compartment. Now you can really size up the rider compartment. You don't have to play around with the weird geometry on the front, like a lot of rakes, super shallow head angles, again, to kick the front wheel out and away from the pedals. You can aim for a normal caster angle, normal handling. And on the rear, because you're running 700C, the gearing is all the same as everybody else's gearing. So nobody can say, oh, I won't go as fast because I have a small front wheel. Well, that doesn't matter. It may be turning around more often than the rear wheel, but it's the rear wheel that's doing all the driving. Yeah. Um, I will say that you know, over the years as I've continued to design frames, because there's been more available in wheel sizes or tires especially, I'm using 26-inch wheels, the ISO 559 size. Uh, front and rear on a lot of bicycles. And I found that 
people don't uh, react as uh, sometimes violently as they do to the side of a bike with two unequal size wheels. Mm-hmm. Because when 26 inch wheels are used on a bike that's proportionate to that size, it looks really normal. And you're not screwing around with the gearing as much because between 559 and 622 on the rear, it's just not that much of a difference. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. So I found myself actually building very few 24700C designs these days, unless the rider's really, really small. Or in the case of a rider who's purchased bikes for me in the past and just loves that look, loves that feel, doesn't want to change it. Stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's actually, it's pretty remarkable. You know, I think some people probably love the idea of having a bike that's a little bit unique and that they're, not only does it look kind of cool to have different size wheels, but it's also, um, you know, you, it gives you an opportunity to talk about how special your bike is to you and, and how it meets your needs just right. And it's it's just right. really cool. Um, and, and also, I would say from my experience riding road bikes and stuff, it is rare, even with a 700C wheel, that I ever feel like I'm running out of top-end gearing and that, like, I really wish I had a taller top yeah. gear. And so if you size that down a little bit on diameter and you lose a little bit of top-end gear ratio, I think most riders who are not trying to, you know, road race uh, competitively are not going to miss that top end gear. And I'm, that's different for different riding styles. But for me, I never feel like I'm just dying for more high gears or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Totally. And, and I think with a lot of the new gearing that's coming out with the one by systems, mm-hmm. uh, the whole gear ratio issue has just changed into a totally different world. Yeah. And you know, there's just so many more options. I love having all that availability. I definitely do. Cause it, it just, Boy, you can really dial stuff in perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, no, components are, we have so many great options these days, I think. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the major segments of your career. You know, you mentioned you were working for Xerox as an engineer. You started building bikes in your basement and went kind of solo. And I know I'm not totally crystal clear on this, but I think you did um, one business for quite a while that you grew into, what is it called, Terry precision or something with saddles and and cycling clothes and uh, a line of mass produced bikes. And then I think at some point you sold that company, worked with them and then you left. And then now you're doing uh, a separate thing, which is custom bicycles that you design that are made by Waterford. I don't know if I'm missing, I'd love to, I guess you can just explain that, but like, I'm curious to hear your whole (laughs) career timeline. Yeah. Okay. Well, when, when I first started in my basement building bikes, I had a very simple little company called Terry Frame Sets. Uh, even though a lot of people didn't know what the heck a frame set was, <laughs> I knew exactly what it was. Being an engineer, I was building frame sets, not just frames. <laughs> and, but the name, you know, the name didn't say very much about the company. So was, uh, once I started getting into just doing bicycles for women, and I had a, a marketing person who was working with me, and he said, why don't we change the company to something that reflects a little bit more? And he came up with the idea of Terry Precision Bicycles for Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first model was called the Precision, and the idea behind Precision was that, you know, this was a precision instrument. Everything was really thought out very carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very precise. It was designed by an engineer, so that followed. We even had some t-shirts and sweatshirts, which I just started selling again, which had uh, kind of a fun thing on the front of it. It said, have a fit. 
And the <laughs> idea behind that was, you know, get a bicycle that fits and then have a fit because the darn industry isn't giving you what you need. <laughs> yeah. So there's a great kind of double entendre going on with that. So uh, carry precision bicycles for a while, just did bicycles. And then we saw the need to do saddles because people were still complaining, even if they got a bike that fit, that they just couldn't find a woman's saddle that was really comfortable. And we started evolving men into saddle with a hole in it. That also is not new. That was patented by Fred Blake, I think, in 1930. Wow. And he actually addressed pressure on the genitals, which can be relieved by using a cutout in the saddle. So he was... He was way ahead of its time. So we had a couple of samples of those made, had some people test them out. They did really well. So we started making those, and we actually diverted into the men's market with our saddles for a while. And for a period of several years, we sold more men's saddles than women's saddles. <laughs> now, that was during the era, remember, when everybody was worried about impotence from being on the wrong saddle. <laughs> and. And, and I think it really hit home with a lot of men, so we just sold saddles like crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and our uh, one of our manufacturers at the time was Stella Italia. They actually still make saddles for Terry. And they we took the saddle the hole to them and said, can you make this? And, and they were like, oh, God, this is probably the stupidest thing we've ever seen. But, yeah, we'll make it. And then they assured us that there was no market for this. Within a year, Salo Italia was making saddles <laughs> and cutouts in them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then we got into apparel because people said, well, it would be neat to have clothes that kind of match the bike because, I mean, clothing for women looks like it was designed by men for a woman, you know. And uh, gradually we got into apparel. And, and I have to say, once we got into apparel... I, I just didn't really have a personal interest in apparel. Mm-hmm. So I left it to other people in the company to drive that side of it because it's just, you know, that's just not one of those things I'm really into. Uh, my heart is in the bicycle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, so we continued with uh, Terry Precision Bicycles for Women, which is still the name of the company, actually. Uh, and I ended up selling it in 2009 to a private investor in Burlington, Vermont. And uh-huh. she moved the comp- company to Vermont. Her main interest uh, is the apparel and the saddles. That's what really turns her on, and that's a market she understands uh, and has the skills to figure out. But as much as she loves the bicycle, bicycles just aren't her thing from the standpoint of let's make them, stock them, and sell them. Yeah. <laughs> So she said to me, after I'd been there for three years and was scheduled to leave, do you, uh, do you want to take these bikes with you? And I said, yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> so I picked up from that point on and uh-huh. uh, started making custom bikes. And I've had the connection with Waterford actually prior to the company being sold because we were doing some hand-built bikes and Waterford was building them for us at the time. So mm-hmm. Richard Schwinn does all of my stuff. Yeah. And to me, that sounds like a really um, great relationship because, you know, they're they're set up for all that. And I think what I and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I hear about, you know, your story and about what gets you really excited is the design process and solving problems. And um, I'm sure you enjoyed certain things about making the bikes yourself. But when you have like a specific skill set of like really being able to address customer needs uh you might rather spend your time with customers solving those problems uh and yeah 
Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when I, when I think about how much time I would spend with a customer when I was doing custom printings myself compared to how much time I spend now, it's like night and day. I think it always surprises people when they enter into uh, the decision that, yeah, they're going to buy a custom frame for me. They're surprised at how intimate the whole process is and how detailed it is and, and how much they learn and I learn before this bicycle even starts to be built at Waterford. I mean, it's such an iterative process. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is that the more time I put into that side of it, the better the, the end product is going to be. Yeah. And not only do I work with Waterford, I always work with a fitter in the area where my customer is. Mm-hmm. I search out a really good fitter if I don't already know of one there. Because to me, since I don't even see these people, I mean, <laughs> rarely do I build for anyone in this area of the country. Rarely. So I have a bunch of information I get from them through a questionnaire, but I would be nuts to think that I know the perfect fit just on the basis of that. I know a lot, but I don't know everything I need to know. So I always get a professional fitter involved. That's when the customer pays for the bike, it includes that fit that's mm-hmm. already built in. Yeah, I had as a guest on this this podcast in, I think, November was Jessica Bradis from FitMe in oh, Ann Arbor, who I believe fitters, is a I retailer or, or a fitter of your yeah. yours, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's incredible. Absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. And I really enjoyed our conversation when I had her on the show, too. Um, so... So you worked with Terry Precision after selling it for three years, and then you took the bicycle side of that business and ran with it, and now you specifically just just design the bikes with lots of customer attention. They're manufactured at Waterford, and then uh, you get to see your customer ride uh, or, you know, photos maybe and hear back from them photos. about their experience. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I imagine that's uh, very satisfying, right? Yeah, it's great, you know, to 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 work directly with the shop that's putting it together and then to to get photographs of it as it's being assembled and then when the customer picks it up and then she usually gets it out on the road and takes, you know, some great mood shots of it and its natural habitat, as I like to call it. And I found, interestingly, that a lot of these customers that I have become friends <laughs> and we end up, you know, meeting together somewhere for a bike ride if there's some event going on or something like that. And just kind of generally staying in touch, so it's really rewarding that way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a pretty common experience, and uh, it's just part of what makes it special when you buy like a handmade good or an artisan good, or maybe it's not even a good; it's a service sometimes. But like when you build relationships yeah. with people rather than, and I mean, of course, there's strengths and weaknesses to something like Amazon.com that's just incredibly convenient. But you don't you don't build those relationships with, um, you know, personal relationships with the experts and the people when you do business like that. And so that's one of the really special things about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, I'd have to, I think I'd have to say if there's anything really special about what I do, it is that relationship. Yeah. And, and how much comes out of that. It's uh, and it's funny because when I when I left Terry and started concentrating on custom again, I didn't realize that was going to happen. It just sort of evolved, and I realized, wow, this is one of the things that I think makes me special as a builder and a designer. I should say as a designer now, because I can I can make sure we have this relationship and that we get to the real nitty gritty of stuff. I think 
you know, some of the stuff is really, really simple. Like I'll look at information people send me and I'll look at their body dimensions and what they're writing now and I'll, and I'll see that there's no way they can stand over that bike and not be right on the top too. <laughs> and I'll email them and say, so when you uh, stand over your bike, are you touching the top tube? Oh, yeah, I've been doing that for years. Got to turn the thing to the side to get off. I'm like, you know, it's not supposed to be that way. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, really simple stuff like that sometimes yeah. comes out. But, yeah, that's part of the fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, something I wanted to ask you about, because uh, you've been in the industry so much longer than me and because of, you know, the businesses that you've been a part of, you would know more about the history of the phrase women-specific design. I'm curious about that. Do you remember, I mean, I imagine that would not have been thrown around much or at all when you were getting started. And now, of course, Correct. for quite a while, it's been a huge buzzword and um, there's pros and cons. Maybe there's more attention given to that segment of the market, but maybe sometimes it's done in a way to maximize revenue and not to necessarily always serve need the best. Like, um, d did your company have a hand in popularizing that phrase or did you hear other people using it first? No, we didn't. You know, we, we were just always bicycles for women and we never came up with a WSD tag. That uh, either belongs to one of the big three, I think, back then, Specialized Tracker Cannondale. Mm -hmm. If you start using it randomly, you'll find out from their attorneys very quickly who. who oh, owns I that, see. <laughs> that moniker, I'm sure, because I think it is, it is registered somewhere. Wow. But yeah, that became you know kind of the big buzzword, and uh, now you don't really hear too much about it. Certainly, from the really big guys, live, which is part of Giant, is really the only major manufacturer I know of that's. Uh, continuing to say, hey, we believe in the women's market, we believe in a specific design for women, mm -hmm. and that's what we're all about. They've been doing that now for 10 years, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also, um, maybe this is a separate sort of thing, but, you know, I think there's, uh, in society, there's a lot more awareness, especially today, about, um, you know, gender being more than just a binary with, with men and women pitted against each other mm -hmm. or, you know, on opposite ends of, like, a binary spectrum. And so I think right. uh, the language is evolving and the awareness is evolving to include, uh, you know, intersex and, and gender non-binary and trans individuals and stuff. And I yeah. think, um, and yeah. You know, I think that the, the real, what we're really coming down to is everybody should have the opportunity to find a bike that fits him or her properly. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if one company wants to be way out on the end of that spectrum saying we focus more on women, hey, that's fine. That's just more product in the, in the pot for everybody. But yeah, I, I agree with you. The lines are just blurred all over the place. But in the end, we're all human bodies. And in the end, the industry has to figure out a way to accommodate as many of those human bodies as they can, regardless of what they're called. Yeah. Um, and I see a lot of, you know, the work that you did with Terry, you know, from a marketing angle was specifically focused on women. But I think a lot of the problems that you s seek to solve were just related in, you know, the fit of like a shorter human person. If you look at 700C wheels, work great for larger riders on road bikes but when you get into shorter bodies you would assume in the industry the reason that it's so prevalent is just that it's cheaper to have one standard wheel size one standard fork size that sort of thing and not that it's necessarily appropriate for everybody 
Yeah, you know, it's really kind of interesting. I have I've never really figured this out. Why there's such a resistance to to letting the wheel size change with the size of the bicycle? Uh, because you know we concentrate on stem length and angles and how many headset spacers and all sorts of other things that we're willing to change crank arm length yeah. uh, to make sure we dial it in. Why are we so afraid of the wheels? Yeah, <laughs> it's like. Some manufacturers just treat that almost as the kiss of death. And where did I see? Was it in bicycle retail or some some service the other the other day? The, there's some in the industry who are now considering three more wheel sizes, all of which are larger, but nothing. Oh on the my phone. god! <laughs> which is which blew my mind. I mean, I I hope that the 559 wheel size continues to do well because right now in that size, the the I, know, I try not to call it the 26-inch mountain bike size because as soon as you say that, people have visions of yeah. wheels that weigh 85 pounds or something. Mm-hmm. But you can find some incredible tires. I mean, it's just some really nice stuff that, that gives the bike such a wonderful feel. You know, I mean, the yeah. wheels are it. The wheels are definitely it. Yeah. When I took a frame building class in 2010 with Doug Faddock, who teaches a traditional lugged steel course. Yeah. He had he showed us his favorite bicycle he had ever built himself. He raved about it. It had SNS couplers for traveling and it had 20-inch wheels and he said, "I don't know what it is. It's the lower bottom bracket, but something else. I don't know. I just really love the way this bike rides." And he raved about it. <laughs> but there were, you know, he was, I don't know, not I don't know if he's I, I don't remember his height. Maybe he's five eight or something. But he was, uh, you know, an average average height man. And yeah. uh, with this bike with the small wheels, he just absolutely loved something. The secret sauce in there somewhere, and he raved about <laughs> it. And um, you know, there's yeah. there's just uh, it's it's funny how we think of a particular size wheel as being you know like the standard in which against which everything else needs to be measured. It is, I mean, if you look at a company like Bike Friday, for instance. You know, necessarily with those really small wheels. I've never heard anyone who owns a bike Friday go, you know, this bike would be so much nicer with 700C, but it's okay. They all rave about those bikes. Yeah. <laughs> I've, even, I've even recommended bike Fridays to really, really super petite women because I know with that wheel size, they can do anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk some about legacy you know you've you've had a pretty long career in the bike industry uh with these you know different major chapters and i think uh your your the companies that you've worked with and ran really did a lot to advance not only you know like the profit of the company or the product line or something but you know you're like pushing these ideas you know i think of uh terry the the companies that you've been associated with is like to me, what I see is that there's this idea, which is that like anyone deserves to have an option for the kind of bicycle that's going to meet their needs. And I think it's cool to, to have a company that stands for an idea like that, that's a little bit more than just, you know, making a product or something. Um, what does that mean to you? You know, what do you hope is your enduring legacy in the industry or the, the overall change you've been able to affect in your career? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, I I just I really hope that you know that the concept of of bicycles for everyone, including women, is going to continue to be a strong one, and that we'll continue to have companies like Terry who will come along and challenge 
the the inertia of the really big companies that some don't really seem to be able to get out of their ruts a lot of times to to think about new new ideas maybe for fear of failing or being laughed at or whatever uh, and you know I think part of it too is just that that I I feel so strongly about the the one or two or three person shop the entrepreneur the person who has an idea and who will shut out all the naysayers if he or she believes in that idea so much that they're determined to make it possible. You know, it's just so easy to go with the flow these days. I guess it has always been like that. It's not easy to, to come up with something new and, and stand by that idea and try and promote it and make it grow at your own personal expense in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you've cemented your, your legacy in the industry. Um, so I'm really stoked to have you as a, as a guest on our show to, you know, to talk about that history. Um, I know you mentioned in that other uh, podcast I was listening to about, you went to a bike show, I think in the eighties and you saw a Chris chance and uh, you know, like the yeah. probably fat city was exhibiting bikes there at the same show as yeah. you. And you got to meet him and that was a really positive experience. What was that like? Uh, you know, when you were building the bike frames, being a part of that community, it's a lot different now with trade shows like the, the handmade shows and, and the yeah. Philly bike expo. What was it like back then? And, and how did you feel like you fit into the community? Was it a positive experience? It was definitely a positive experience. I mean, it, it definitely a, a really small community for sure. And, and that particular show was just a, a regional show in Massachusetts, so there weren't very many people there. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I mean, from, from Chris Chance, just uh, he might have looked at my bikes and went, oh, wow, this person's got a lot of work to do. <laughs> but, but he was so encouraging, you know. I, I walked out of there going, wow, wow, maybe I do know what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep working at this. That's pretty, that's pretty neat. And the same thing with Bill Boston, just saying, hey, yeah, take this idea and run with it. And and certainly with some of the small suppliers I was working with back then for tubing uh, and brazon bits and that kind of stuff, just willing to share so much information. I mean, it was it was just, it was terrific. I mean, and even today, just working with Waterford, it's like opening an encyclopedia of bicycle design. You can just start asking these questions and taking them back through the ages with Paranown and doing things this way and that way. And they know all of that stuff. I mean, it's just, it's uh, like a junkie kind of heaven talking to those people. Yeah. But yeah, I find with this industry today, certainly uh, everybody's just really wide open. Nobody feels threatened by anybody else. I mean, I'm talking about the, the small builder side of it. Everybody wants to help each other, encourage each other. You know, it's not like, oh, if you take my customer, that's going to be bad, so I'm not going to tell you anything. I, I mean, I think the attitude is, hey, we've got a lot to offer, and the more we bring to the table, the more people get into bicycling, and that'll just continue to build. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so having all this history in the cycling industry, uh, I always ask my 
my guests, you know, if they have any advice to anyone listening. And so, you know, a lot of times my guests are, are practicing frame builders who are building in a shop and sometimes their advice has to do with the technique and the processes. And I think you have more to offer in terms of, you know, uh, having run successful businesses and endured the bike industry is just a tough one. It just kind of chews people up and spits people out. A lot of people get kind of bitter and jaded after a decade or so. Uh, and you've endured for such a long time. Do you have any advice with regard to business or anything else you'd like to share to people who, who care to do anything along the lines of what you've done? Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing is, it, it, you know, never forget why you started doing this. It's probably because you were just super, super passionate about some aspect of frame building or, or whatever. And you, and you have to continue to nurture that passion and let it grow. One of the things that, that I, I did all the time was if I got excited about something and told somebody about it and that person went, eh, I don't think so. That was it. I just cut them off right there, you know, <laughs> because I, I didn't want anybody around me who said no or negative or what are you crazy? Mm-hmm. I wanted people around me who thought that stuff was a good idea because you have to keep the environment like super, super positive. And I, I, I taught myself an awful lot of stuff. I didn't ask as many questions as I probably should have because I just found that I worked better that way. And if you get too many opinions in the pot, then you get drawn in too many directions. And that was the hard thing about Terry as it grew, was you couldn't just do something anymore. I mean, you had to get everybody's approval. It's like, oh, man, I don't work like this. <laughs> that was the whole reason. But he had my bicycle. So each individual, find your strengths and play to them. Don't let anyone change them. That's what you've got going for you. So make the most of it. Yeah. I think that's great. I also, I keep referencing this other podcast, which I'll, I'll link in the description on my website. Um, cause it was great, but you said your, your other interviewer was asking you about where you find the, the confidence or something to do these things. And you said that it started with stubbornness that you would go into something stubborn that you could do it. And then when you eventually succeeded through stubbornness, then you would retroactively develop some confidence that you knew what you were doing, something along those lines. Wow, I'm trying to remember. Did I really say that? That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, it really made an impression on me. I thought it was great because I, I can relate to that. And um, yeah. and I think that's good that I can relate to that. When I was younger, I related to it less. I think over the years, I've learned that I need to be le- like you're saying, like when there's too many opinions in the pot, it's not always a good thing. And I think I've always kind of too much, uh, sometimes to my detriment, really respected the people who came before me that they know what they're talking about. And of course, they do. And that's powerful. But um, at a certain point, you just got to be willing to take your own chances, you know, and, um, and the more I learn that lesson, the better. And I think it's good that you've, you've known that for a while. Yeah, I think, you know, part of that probably comes too because I'm an only child. So, you know, I've always been kind of fending for myself. So I'm used to that. But, but I do, I agree with you. I mean, sometimes I think there's such a thing as information overload. I mean, obviously, you don't want to get yourself into trouble doing something. But sometimes it's best just to start out really, really simple and and build it up uh, literally and figuratively from that point before you start getting into all the nuances of what's going on. You know, just just keep everything really pure for a while. And, and I think you make a lot more headway that way. Obviously, you know, if you're 
doing something super, super complicated, that might not be the, <laughs> the right approach. But, but for a lot of things, it works pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I really uh, I appreciate that a lot, um, that whole perspective that you bring to that. Um, well, anyway, thanks so much for being on our show. I'm really glad to be able to share this with everyone else. Um, let's talk soon. Yeah, let me know. And thanks again. I enjoyed it. Yeah, bye.